Before we jump into the app, quick reminder that nothing on Bell Curve is financial advice. Everything is just a meme. Hope you guys enjoy. A lot of times people, people really like founders really truly want to create these public goods and it's, it's really important to them, but they don't think through what happens when they have investors and token holders who actually have control over the public goods via this governance and economic right. And I think that's where things go a little bit haywire. All right, buddy. It's going to be a good one today. We're talking to uh, Larry Sokernick and Derek Shu from Reverie. Really interesting. Uh, so we had, a re- we had a really good first episode with uh, Hasu and Chris on. Uh, we talked all about, uh, they give us basically the high level idea of product governance fit or business governance fit as, as Chris wrote that piece. Next, we're, we're kind of moving uh, and talking more like tactically, right, about what some of this stuff actually means. So um, just some, some background for folks, uh, Larry and and Derek uh, run a firm called Reverie. They're probably one of the most kind of hands-on, like practitioner-focused groups that actually interfaces with DAOs on a daily basis. So they're much more qualified, honestly, than than you and I in many regards to discuss, like kind of what are the the pros and cons of how DAOs are structured today, and you know what their sort of recommended changes are going forward. Uh, and we specifically talk about kind of map out, um, you know, what. Uh, corporate governance kind of looks like today, how it might be different in DAO land, and then we get a little bit prescriptive and offer some advice for DAOs towards the end of the episode. But um, and you, you get in there too. You're, you're a maker delegate. So oh, yeah, little... I was going to say, you stole my thunder in this intro. You're, you took the, what are we talking about? You took you took the, who are we talking to? You talk, you took the, who did we just talk to in the last episode? Yeah, you got in the mix. You uh, in there, you're a delegate at Maker, you know? We heard some on the ground experience from you. I'm really bringing nothing to the table. All right, let's. Uh, this is a really good episode. I, I hope you guys enjoy it. Let's get into it. All right, everyone. Before we jump into this episode, super excited about our newest sponsor, Reserve. Big shout out to Reserve. They are the easiest way to design, deploy, and govern stable coins, backed by a diverse set of assets with access to DeFi yield and insurance. If you don't know Reserve, we're super excited about them here at Bell Curve. You'll hear more about them later in the show. All right, guys. Uh, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Uh, we've got Larry Suckernick and Derek Shu, the co-founders at Reverie. Fellas, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, guys. Really appreciate it. Um, we've got uh, a lot of ground to cover, uh, as you guys can probably tell from the uh, mega document slash novel that I sent over your way before, before recording here. Uh, but I'd love to uh, kind of start high level here and get your guys' thoughts on the state, the current state of uh, DAO governance. Um, so maybe as a, as a jumping off point, uh, Larry, I've kind of heard you make this analogy of, you know, just, just setting context here that, that people kind of bring their past experience uh, to them when they're looking at DAO governance. So if you kind of come from a, a political background, you look at this more through the lens of, uh, you know, poli-sci and how governments kind of work. Uh, and if you come from more of a, a builder kind of corporate America standpoint, you kind of see elements of corporate governance that should be introduced to get DAOs. So can you kind of address that idea of people, you know, bringing their, uh, their, their work from home, so to speak? And like, what is your mental model? model mental model for thinking about DAO governance? Yeah, happy to riff on that a little bit. I mean, you know, the the way I think about this stuff is there's all sorts of mental models for pretty much anything in life, right? Whether it's governance, uh, capital allocation, um, design, you know, people, people, when they're learning about new concepts, particularly complicated concepts, they tend to reason through analogy. And so mental models are a very easy way to, to think about new complicated things. And you know, in my experience and in, in our Reverie's experience with DAOs, the two common mental models for governance in, in DAO land are really one, 
hey, let's govern these things as countries, right? So whether it's a democracy sort of thing or um, or dictatorship, but that's like one mental model, right? And the second one is corporate uh, governance, right? So having uh, the, the same sort of mental model as you apply to uh, to companies, right, with uh, shareholders, with the board, and with investors um, and, and managers, um, that, that sort of mental model applies as well. And those, I would say, are the two common ones you see in Dowland. There are others, to be sure, but I'd say those are the most frequent ones. And and they're basically just mental models, right? These are ways that people think about um, how to make governance decisions in the crypto space. Um, so probably just reasoning by analogy uh, is almost always wrong. But again, they can provide kind of helpful ballast points, right? Or almost goalposts for how to think about things. Um, so when you're when you're looking out there into the world of the DAOs that exist uh, today, um, I mean, how would you kind of make that distinction in between like governance for in like a liberal democracy on like a government type scale versus corporate governance? Like where is it? Uh, what are sort of the principles of both and where does it make sense to apply those different principles? It's a very difficult question to answer. I think it's um, it, the answer is it depends right on the on the project. Um, my, my general gut sense for this stuff and I've shared I've shared this before on, on our podcast. I pledge allegiance is basically the governance structure should fit the product. So if the product benefits from having um, you know, a, a, a very slow moving governance structure, right? So take like Ethereum, for example, right? Ethereum pitches itself as a neutral base layer platform that's censorship resistant. Well, if, if that's the case, then it probably benefits from having a very slow governance process. That way developers can know if I'm building on Ethereum, the ground is not gonna change under me, right? It's not just gonna shift overnight. But if the product is something like an app, right, that benefits from rapid iteration, um, upgrading, you know, the product and, and fixing bugs, then the governance structure probably should look more like, you know, a company, right, or a, or a dictatorship where you can make decisions very quickly. And so, you know, having having some sense for what governance structure fits my product, I think is really important to get it right. Derek, can I can I have you piggyback on, on Larry's point there? Do you think that that is set from the beginning? Like you, when you set out to build something, you're like, all right, this is a product DAO, uh, and and it because it's a product DAO, it should be governed like this, or it's like, okay, in year one and two, it, you know, it's a pro, it's we're focused on like wide products, so maybe it's like very centralized decision making. And then in year threes and three and four, it changes. Like, how, how do you think about that? Uh, the governance changing as like the maturation changes. Yeah, great question. I definitely think that governance structures evolve over time for projects just by by natural forces, by natural evolution, as there's more and more stakeholders. Like, obviously, the decision-making process and, and the debates, they change. And I think that's how it should be. I think early on, pre-product market fit, you probably don't need lots of voices in the room contributing to every single decision. So again, it, happy to go into more specifics, but I think broadly speaking, like depending on the life cycle of, of the project, the same governance structure can make a lot of sense or, or, or make no sense at all. So hmm. I think maybe there are a couple of different, like if you almost had like a two by two matrix of different uh, like some of the two of the important factors are like maturity, right? So is this a six month old uh, startup, right? Or is this a, you know, 10 year old uh, type corporation? Nothing really isn't in crypto is 10 years old outside of Bitcoin. Uh, but there's kind of like the timing and maturation on one axis. And then there's also 
close uh, closeness to base layer infrastructure on the other. So maybe you would put Bitcoin and Ethereum as extremely close, uh, like almost like the bottom layer of infrastructure, which is depending on how you conceptualize those two projects, kind of like a store value money type thing, and then in, like an IP uh, preservation type system on, on the other side of things. And then you can kind of layer up from there. Um, so maybe like one layer up from Bitcoin and Ethereum, you might put like a maker uh, right type type protocol. Um, I'd be curious if you guys like one thing that has come out of our interview with uh, Hasu and Chris. Uh, you know, previously was different governance structures are appropriate for uh, based on where the protocol sits on the infrastructure layer. So I'd love to get your thoughts on if you agree with that concept, uh, and if so, if you've given any thought to like categorizing. You know, what are the different layers of financial infrastructure that we're kind of building here? I think the intuition there is is quite sound, right? The the intuition being if if it's lower level infrastructure, it probably is being built upon by other developers, right? By other people in the ecosystem. And if that is the case, then they probably don't want that infrastructure to change very quickly because if it does, right, it's it's going to bubble up all the way to the top and that's not good. And so the intuition is, hey, if a lot of people are building on this infrastructure, it probably should have a very slow moving governance structure so that people can actually depend on it and they won't wake up one morning and the whole thing is different, right? And the higher level we go, the fewer people depend on it and there's fewer dependencies, right? We can probably make more rapid iterations on the governance structure. So I, I totally agree with that, with that approach. How, how about uh, if I could like poke you to maybe, I, I don't know if you've thought of this or I'll just put you on the spot here a little bit, but if you thought about what those layers kind of might look like, like maybe as a jumping off point, right? Do you agree that kind of Maker and maybe like a Uniswap or, or Aave Compound kind of sit on that that first layer? And if so, like how many different layers are appropriate? Like Hasu actually made made the point that the analog in corporations might be something like utility companies, right? Which you have like corporate governance for utilities, but they occupy, they're almost like kind of semi-nationalized, right? There's there's an appropriate uh, profit that utilities companies can make every year. Say, hey, we want to invest in X amount of CapEx at this corporate profit because those are like natural monopoly type companies, but they're regulated and their governance looks pretty different because we all need power, right? Uh, the government has basically said, we, we want all of our citizens to have power. So have you kind of, um, you know, thought about those sorts of classifications or, or analogs uh, in crypto specifically? I struggle with this because in any given year, I feel like, well, first of all, to take a step back, all this stuff, all the layers are very emergent, right? And so, you know, if we look at what we thought are the layers two years ago, um, a lot of those layers kind of, you know, moved around. Some went up the stack, some went down the stack, some stayed in the stack, and some just disappeared, right? And so that layer cake, um, it's very, I think, difficult in any given time to say, okay, here's how it will actually cement and grow over the coming years. Um, so my personal approach is just to look and see and, and not to overthink it and, uh, and not to have strong opinions on which layers are here to stay and which layers are, are actually going to go away. How do you guys think about the tension sometimes in between, like, let's look at Maker as, let's let's caveat it and say, it looks like a very base layer protocol today. Maybe we don't know exactly where it falls in the stack. But, uh, you know, Maker is supposed to produce a, a stablecoin die, right? That's the product. And it has a, you know, on the one hand, you'd, you'd maybe want to minimize the, the surface layer, the surface level area for governance, right? Because it's supposed to do a very simple thing. On the other hand, you know, the, the competitive advantage is kind of managing a balance sheet and managing risk, which is actually a very complicated thing to do. So how do you think about that kind of tension in between minimizing governance surface area versus actually the value add of a protocol like 
like Maker is doing something very complex beneath the surface. Yeah, happy to jump in. I think, again, I think you highlighted both ends of the spectrum really well. Like on the one hand, it's obvious that MakerDAO, if it wants to survive long-term, it has to be resilient to attack and governance can be a liability. I think there, the, the more quickly something changes, obviously the more potential downside risk there is. But at the same time, yeah, if you like MakerDAO has, they're where they are because they were one of the first projects to, to, to launch in terms of Ethereum and DeFi. So they were well positioned from the beginning, but I think going forward, if they want to maintain their positioning, um, yeah, they're not going to do it by simply just surviving. Um, I think that's probably the most important thing, but th th there still is innovation that, that, that remains. There's remaining yeah, balance sheet management that, that has to be optimized. And over a long enough time frame, if you only care about survival, like you'll fall behind on some of these other parameters, right? Like MakerDAO is still only at this point, five years old, which is a long time in crypto, but in the grand scheme of things, pretty young, right? So I think, yeah, crypto gives us all a, a, a different sense of timing and, and, and longevity, but I think it's really important to just keep that in context. Yeah, I've had a, you know, kind of similar thought. And I, I think sometimes where this this debate centers around for me is almost this idea of public goods. So one idea that you kind of hear sometimes even within the, the scaling roadmap of something like Uniswap and leaving aside the regulatory component uh, and lens through which you could look at this, which I want to get your take on later, is this idea that, okay, um, so Uniswap V3 is basically, we're, we're going to stop really building much post that, right? That's kind of a public good uh, that we want at the base layer there, this liquidity provision kind of decks that other people can build on. Um, and then we can build products and services on top of that. But if you if you dig into the assumption there, it's this idea that Uniswap V3 is the last layer, right? And for whatever reason, we've decided, you know, there was V1 and now there's V2 and V3 is basically good. And that's going to be the public good. Whereas you could take another angle and say, well, actually, you know, providing liquidity and creating, a, you know, stealing market share on the DEX level is still a wildly profitable business, right? There's probably good capital allocation decisions to be made at that layer. Why have we surrendered <laughs> building at that layer. It seems very unlikely to me that in two years, right, we've, we've built the best decks that we possibly can. Um, so can you talk about a little bit how you think about this idea of, you know, public goods and where that uh, enters the conversation as well? I, I think like in most cases, if the thing has a token, it's not really a public good, right? Like all of a sudden you have token holders or the owners of the thing, right? If there's a governance uh, right that the token holders have, they probably have, you know, control over certain critical parameters and, uh, and they're going to want to, whether they tell you or not, they're going to want to extract rents. Right. And, and I think that's not applicable to all projects, certainly, but to the grand majority and, um, you know, the public good stuff, my sense is, is, um, you know, a lot of times people, people really like founders really truly want to create these public goods. And it's, it's really important to them. But they don't think through what happens when they have investors and token holders who actually have control over the public goods via this governance and economic right. And I think that's where things go a little bit haywire. 
Larry, how do you think about, or, or, or to Derek, how do you think about just who you're optimizing for, right? Because Mike, Mike brought up public goods. You're like, yeah, well, when you have a token, like it's not really a public good because now you have these token holders. And it, it uh, reminded me of that piece that you guys wrote, Musings on Governance, um, where you're just talking about how there's a bunch of different, like there's a, there are a bunch of things that you're trying to optimize for. And sometimes you see people trying to optimize maybe too much for like the community or for like open DAOs. But really what you should be optimizing for is like, building amazing products and shareholder value, right? Which looks a lot like what we optimize for in corporate governance. So I'm just, I'd love to get both of your takes here. Like, what are you, how do you think about what you're actually trying to optimize for? And, and, and have you seen examples of folks optimizing for the wrong thing? Yeah, I think like everyone has their own opinions on, I, I think most people would agree that token holders matter, users matter, community matters. Like, all the stake, all stakeholders matter. There's a lot of disagreement on who's most important and in what order and what, and what percentages. But the one belief I do have is, and, and I think on that, on that point, like what's most important, like you could talk all day about that and we wouldn't get anywhere. But I think what will be true over again, a long enough time frame, is the protocols that care about the right one or two stakeholders over the rest, they'll be the ones to actually survive and maintain their relevancy. So it's not about what what what, what we should care about. It's about what will happen and, and, and what the protocols prioritize. So to me, again, it comes down to, to, to users. I think if, if users don't remain on your platform, regardless of what you use, community doesn't matter, token holders don't matter, partnerships don't matter, like none of that matters, I think, yeah, if, if users are there, the other things will generally follow. Um, obviously, there's exceptions and, and, and it changes, like, depending on the life cycle. But I think, by and large, like, if you don't have users, you don't really have anything. How do you think about, you know, one of, one of the innovations of crypto that a lot of people tout as being one of the big benefits is, like, alignment between token holders and users, right? So, like, Web3 Uber or something, right? You, you know, Uber on the blockchain, you would have uh, users, <laughs> the users of Uber and, and the early token and the early sh shareholders of Uber might be one and the same, right? And a lot of people espouse this as being one of the best things about crypto. Maybe in the, in the on the other side of the, of the bull market, you're seeing that this isn't maybe necessarily the case oftentimes. I'm just curious, maybe, I don't know who to ask this question to, but how do you think about just this uh, dichotomy between like users and token holders and the overlap and Derek, you're, I, I agree with you. You're optimizing for the user, but like how, how much of the overlap is there for the token holders as well? I think, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think as long as token holders are the only ones with like clearly defined governance power, it will be an uphill battle for users to have influence on the protocol. Like, but I do think users have a lot of influence, even in protocols where it's like on-chain governance and only token holders have a say. But I do think over a long enough time frame, yeah, it's important for really important for users to have like a direct say, whether it's formal or, or informal. I think Lido's STETH tool governance is a great example of this, where LDO token holders have a, 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 currently have a lot of power. And over, again, if, if Lido continues growing, there's a lot of downside risk for, for, for users and, and ETH holders that are using Lido to stake. So 
I, th- I do think over, again, over time, we protocols should strongly consider implementing safeguards on to- what token holders can do and the types of veto rights that, that, that your users can, can have. Today, most of that veto right is informal. Um, but I think, yeah, it's, it, it, it's an experiment, I think, worth, worth running. Is, is giving you the, your average user more formal rights and, and methods in, term, in governance. Just to jump on what Derek said, because I agree with it. Um, I mean, you know, you look at like some of the companies we grew up with, right? Like Uber and maybe Seamless and, um, and Grubhub, right? And I remember when they first got started, I was like, wow, this product is awesome. It's super cheap way cheaper than the status quo, right? Or like a taxi or like mm-hmm. a delivery that a restaurant would, would have. Um, but that's totally changed as these companies actually became incumbents, right? And I find, you know, Ubers are very expensive now, probably more than taxis are, at least in, in, in New York where I live. Um, and the same with, you know, uh, delivery for food. And so I, I think there's this like general pattern that happens, you know, up and coming companies, they're like, we fight for the user, right? Once they gain the user, they're like, well, we got to make money, right? Why did we do this fight for the user thing if we didn't make any money sort of thing, right? So they start becoming extractive. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, right? I think that's just kind of a feature of capitalism, right? There's always this, um, you know, uh, chaos, right, in the system. Um, And it really leads to innovation because the incentive is always to fight for the user for the first five to 10 years. Then once you have the user, you start trying to make money. and I think we'll probably see a very similar dynamic with crypto companies that basically say, hey, we're not going to be extractive. You know, let's let's hold them to that to the fire five, 10 years from now and see what actually happens. Hmm. I have a maybe just because my brain sort of works uh, like a five year old's. Uh, I'd love to maybe like try to simplify and get a, almost like a mental map uh, for what we're talking about here, which is when I think about corporate governance, right? And we're talking about different stakeholders here. Uh, there are kind of three, maybe four really that matter, right? There are the shareholders. Those are the principals of the company. There are the managers right, or the operators, and those are the agents. And they're supposed to be acting on behalf of the principals, the shareholders. And then there's a, a board of directors, right? Which is they act as fiduciaries to the shareholders. And they're supposed to sort of be in between, right? And and watch the, the managers and operators on behalf of the the shareholders. I suppose you could also use uh, add users, right? Uh, that that as as a stakeholder, but they don't. They basically get no voice in corporate governance. So I'm not really going to include them. I would love for you guys. Who do you think the most important stakeholders are in our kind of crypto DAO land, right? If you kind of map out uh, in the same way for corporate governance, how it looks today uh, in DAOs. So like most important stakeholders or like each stakeholder and like relatively what their role is and what they do. I'll take a stab at this. I think if you empirically look at the evidence today, token holders have the majority of power and are the most active ones actually participating in governance in terms mm-hmm. of proposing proposals, voting on them, like even chiming in, right? Like by definition, they are the ones, they are the only ones that have formal power. So I think they have, token holders have the most influence today. A lot of the time you need, you need a, a pretty large minimum to even propose a vote, which gates others from, from, from really participating. I think, yeah, users are the second category and 
generally, again, this is a, a pretty broad generalization, but but I don't see your average user that doesn't hold tokens. Like I don't see see their incentive to really participate in governance. If they have a problem with the the product or the app, they'll be in the Discord or the Telegram, like asking that question, not necessarily participating in your on-chain governance forum. So I think, yeah, there's, there's others, obviously there's team members, there's builders on top of, of the protocols that I think obviously are, 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 are all highly relevant and, and do a lot. Um, but yeah, I, I would that that's sort of my general opinion. My sense is, um, it, it depends on just like it depends on in, in the web two world, the company, um, we're talking about, I think here it depends on the project we're talking about too, but I think the general mental model I have for this is, um, if the switching costs are, are very high, right. Then the token holders have, um, have a lot more leverage over the users. If the switching costs are low, you know, users have way more leverage because they could vote with their feet. They don't, they're not happy with the product. They think it's extractive. They're like, screw it. We're going to go use another product, right? Mm. Um, which is why monopolies, right, typically have really high switching costs, which is why they're very regulated, right? Because, you know, government, governments know monopolies could just, you know, extract rents and users can't really vote with their feet. So that's how I generally think of it. And, and obviously companies in the, in the traditional world that have higher switching costs, they're valued way higher by markets than companies with really low switching costs because, you know, users churn much more quickly and companies don't have the ability to increase prices as much as a company that has really high switching costs for their products. I'd be curious, like one one uh, stakeholder that we haven't really talked about, and maybe this isn't a formal enough group uh, or, or it's still in its kind of nascent stages, but uh, one is kind of delegates. Um, and uh, I, I'd love to also start talking about some of the proposed uh, sort of structures that DAOs have have advocated for that look a little bit more like corporate governance. Uh, you know, Hasu kind of talked about in our first episode what he proposed at Maker. I know you guys have proposed uh, something, a pretty interesting structure at, at Orca, so I'd love to get into some of those examples. But I would love to get your understanding of what, you know, because right now in in uh, Maker, and I'm talking, Jason, I know you're, you're a Maker delegate, so maybe I can get your opinion here to weigh in on this. But, um, you know, I think delegates are, are being asked to increasingly weigh in on a, an enormous quantity of issues uh, and an, an increasing complexity of issues as well. And historically, there haven't been great compensation structures. So you're starting to hear almost the, the advocating for like a professional class of delegates where it's almost like a full-time role with compensation to weigh in on these sorts of things. I'd be curious to get an understanding from you guys of like what the role, uh, what role delegates play in some of these larger DAOs. I can, I can take a stab at this one first. Um, I, I mean, you're right, like there's this trend happening, right, where delegates are um, are really being charged with a lot of the decision making, right, because people delegate their votes to them, right, because most people don't have the time or interest in browsing governance forums, like it's very time consuming to get the information to know how to vote. And so they're basically outsourcing that to delegates whose job it is to read what's happening in the forums, get a sense for what decisions are being made and how to vote um, for those decisions. Um, my, my general sense on this is like, we, we could have a world where, you know, we're going to have these professional delegates, just like we have, you know, proxy advisors, essentially, right. But that would be a shame. I think there is no better um, 
person situated to vote than the actual owner, right? The, the person who actually owns the assets, right? Because it's their money, right? Um, the moment you introduce principal agent problems, right, where you delegate your power, your governance power to someone who's, um, uh, who's not going to face the risk of loss, you know, you will have all sorts of fuzzy decision make, making um, that you see in, in the traditional world, too. So I think that is probably the path of least resistance, but I don't know if it'll necessarily lead to the best decision making. I have a thought on this as well, but I, sorry, I'll answer my own kind of question here because I've had before uh, BlockWorks, I was a consultant. Right, so sort of very professional services, and I, I can tell you, I the way I thought about solving problems as a consultant is extremely different about how I think about solving problems as an operator of a business. Um, and let me caveat this by saying I know uh, Reverie is, uh, you know, I don't, I want to give you guys a chance to talk about it at the end, but I, when I'm talking about professional services, I'm not really referring to you guys because you're a much more practitioner and like have stake in the game and think about getting in the weeds. But when I started being a consultant, I thought you were going to solve really hard problems because that's what it's billed as, right? Like the most challenging uh, problems in business, you get to go solve a whole bunch of them. And to some degree, that's too, to some degree, it's not necessarily true. Uh, in a lot of cases, you're brought in kind of as insurance uh, by your stakeholder, right? So like a VP of marketing wants a, or sales or operations who wants a big change done, they want to bring in consultants to basically, you know, look at the data, but make sure the data says what what I say, right? So that I can go to the board and say, hey, I got these independent guys to, to come to this decision. But even more so than that, as, a, as an independent party, I didn't really think about a lot. I thought more about what would sound good or what would be a good narrative or what would look good on slides versus what I actually thought would work. Uh, and, and it's just a very different, maybe if you've had experience acting as a consultant versus like a proprietor and owner, like maybe other people have had this experience. So I hear these arguments about a professional class of delegates and I get it. You have to be compensated and, but at the same time, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me because you're sort of acting a professional class of delegates to make decisions for which I, I just, it just doesn't, I don't love it. I'll be, I'll be honest. It's my, the end of that take there, but um, I'm curious if uh, anyone has thoughts on, on that perspective. I mean, who, who would you have who would you have like make the how how would you set it up different would you take away the delegate system mike or how would you i i guess the uh it's it's about properly uh incentivizing people who are who are best uh, who who are best suited to make the decision um so right now i think one of the, the big problems is this like one to one voting uh based on based on your token ownership that that kind of exists i just don't see that I don't see how that can continue and good decisions can be made, especially in these early stage protocols. Um, I mean, yeah, it reminds me of something that I, uh, the, the, I'll, I keep going back to this piece because I really liked it, that Reverie wrote, the musing, musings of governance. Um, there, there was one piece that was like, we'd much rather participate in a DAO with 10 motivated 10% owners than a DAO with 10,000 lackadaisical 0.01% owners, right? The outcome in the former case is likely to be far more positive than the outcome in the latter case. Um, and so like in this, it, it, it's a related idea, right? Because in, in, I think what you see right now is DAOs really pushing to A, get as many people, as many contributors as possible. And then what you get is another thing that was talked about in the piece, which is there's a bunch of conflicting interests. And then B, you get as many contributors and then they're like, ah, I don't want to actually vote. I'm going to delegate my vote. And then you just get these like, this cohort of like, these delegates who they actually aren't really experts on what's going on in the protocol. Oftentimes they're just these like big brands in the space. Um, and then you just start looking almost like 
I, I've noticed that diligence on, on votes in protocols is very similar to VC diligence where you'll be like, in, v, in like how VCs, how a lot of VCs do due diligence is like an angel investors. Why, like, why does an angel invest in deal? They're like, oh, cause like these funds are involved. Okay. Well, why is the fund involved? Oh, cause Andreessen's leading it and Andreessen has 4 billion and they must've done this great due diligence. And that's how a lot of VC due diligence happens is like, there's a remarkable lack of due diligence. Well, in like MakerDAO, how oftentimes it happens is like, Ooh, like this thing looks super complicated. Like I could spend 20 hours digging into this, or I could see that like Mika Honkasalo and like Flipside voted on yes on this. And like, they're really smart. So I'll probably go with them that there's a lot of overlap there. Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of just like, like I, I, I agree with all your, with most of your points, but that's also just kind of how life works, right? Like if I need a babysitter, right. I'm going to, I'm going to, if I have a friend that I, that I trust that has great experience, like I'm not going to go through all the diligence myself as if I met this person completely new, if I, same thing. So, so I think, but, but I do agree with your broader point that it's like Uber just raised a series a, and we have external proxies debating on the forums about like what colors all the tax taxis have to be, or, or whether they can have like certain thresholds for, for kind of cars, like you don't need all of those people to be paid or, or even to have that be a debate in the first place. Um, so I think, again, it brings us back to this point of governance liability and, 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 and the scope of governance, which we've, I, I know has been discussed a lot, but yeah, I tend to agree, like introducing too many professional delegates, that have a very large scope, it doesn't feel proper to me either. That said, I do think even with the protocols today, like it can be helpful to have external voices that aren't just your community or, or, or the team, because the reality is that a lot of big token holders don't participate. So if you, if they don't participate, the alternative is what it's like, what is the alternative? The alternative is either silence or someone less qualified or, or, or less knowledgeable comes in to fill that void. So there's no perfect solutions. I don't think like a fully full-time professional set of delegates is, is, is an ideal world or, or should happen. But I do think like there's a lot of very obvious things that, that, that could be done by, 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 by people that follow the protocol. Here, here's my, I think my main problem with the, um, I'm doing what I actually hate when others do is just bring a bunch of problems and no solutions. But uh, uh, one of the issues with the delegate system in my mind is that there's minimal accountability for decisions. Um, so, so like, let's say how decisions are made internally at companies is, um, you know, like, like Blockworks, for example, like if we have a, uh, I don't know, like a, a chief revenue officer or something. And like, they have a convict, they have a convicted view on like where we should take our, the sales side of our business and we're going to let them do it. Cause they're the chief revenue officer and like, they're making a bold bet, but if they fail, like they could get fired. Right. And like, that's on that, like, but they're the high risk, high reward in, uh, in, in with these delegates, it's like, there's minimal downside actually. And there's like a low level of accountability, I would say. Um, so again, I don't have the solution, but it does feel like, um, 
you meet, maybe that's the benefit of having these like committee like systems where you have leaders, the leaders are accountable, the leaders can get removed from their places, which again, sounds very much like teams and VP of marketing and a VP of sales inside of companies. But that, that's why I like this committee system is not because it's more efficient, but actually because you end up with leaders who are incredibly accountable uh, that you can actually remove when things go poorly. I think that's, that's super important, right? Like if, if you have any sort of committee, right? Like that's necessary, but not sufficient. Like you actually need the committee members to hold the people accountable, right? And, um, and, and similarly, like the idea was with a lot of the, the V1 DAOs, hey, token holders will keep people accountable. I think the reality though is most token holders are not equipped to pe keep people accountable. And, and two is accountability is, um, it's tough, right? Because this is a cottage industry, right? So everyone knows everyone through one or two mutual connections. And if you are in the committee or if you're a large token holder and you're trying to keep someone accountable and they're not doing good work, you basically have to cross them and say, hey, I'm going to publicly out you. And if you have a social relationship with this person or, or entity, it becomes awkward, right? It's just very, very awkward. Um, and I think there's like a lot of research that basically says, you know, accountability, it either works when A, all of the individuals, they really give a shit, right? Like it's really important to them personally to be accountable or B, when you have the the people who are, are holding the people accountable, they're outsiders, not not just independent folks, but outsiders who actually want to do the right thing, right? And to keep people accountable. Um, so it's a really, really tough problem. And companies, I think, have the same sort of issues. And there's all sorts of academic research on it. Um, and I, I doubt that will, as an industry, be the first ones to solve that. All right, everyone. Brief break in the show here to talk about our newest sponsor, Reserve. So, you know, it's looking pretty bleak out there. It's not looking that great. We know what the one thing there's no bear market in? Stable coins. Stables, baby. Stables. We love those stable coins, uh, which is why we're excited to partner with Reserve Protocol. So let's just start with the basics. What is Reserve? It's a self-service platform to build, deploy, and govern asset-backed stable coins, uh, which can be integrated with DeFi or within the real economy. So the cool thing about Reserve is basically anyone out there permissionlessly can take any set of ERC-20 tokens and use them to collateralize their own stablecoin. So the long-term goal of the reserve protocol is to create a non-inflationary currency that is stable on a month-to-month -month basis, but also a century-to-century -century basis. In the meantime, though, they're open-sourcing design decisions for stablecoins, which is just super, super cool. I think one of the benefits that you get there is diversification. You hear it all the time in Finance 101, no such thing as a free lunch except for diversification. That's what you're getting with reserve protocol. Yeah. I've known the team for a long time. I spoke on a panel at SF Blockchain Week with Nevin, uh, with Joe Carlson and, and Alex Gladstein, really impressive uh, growth that they've been able to have so far, right? Their premier stablecoin is RSV. It is backed by three other stables. It's already used by over half a million people transacting over $300 million a month. Right now, like Mike was talking about, anyone can go create a custom bespoke stablecoin using the reserve protocol. You can back it by maybe specific USD stables, or you can get uh, creative and you know maybe build something more complex like inversely correlated assets the branding governance and composition are completely up to you and lastly if there are any builders who are listening and you aren't interested in issuing your own stable coin what you can do is you can stake reserves governance token against your favorite stable strategies so what you're doing there is you're providing backstop insurance to stablecoin holders not riskless, right? Not financial advice. There's definitely some risk in doing that, but it does allow you to earn yield, especially now in crypto when there are so few ways to do that. It's definitely worth checking out. So at the very least, you should click the link at the bottom of this episode, go check out the Reserve website, see all the cool stuff they're up to. 
Most importantly, though, click this link. Got to give Jason and me some credit here. Show right? us some love. Uh, show us some love. Give us some love, baby. Give us some love. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now back to the show. Let's get into it. I want to um, – so a friend of mine pointed this out to me recently, and I thought it was, it was pretty interesting. Um, there's a, if, you, if you look up the definition of sabotage as defined by the OSS manual, uh, I want to give you a couple of tactics for sabotage that's actually employed by the CIA. And you, you tell me if this reminds you of anything. When possible, refer all matters to committees for further study and consideration. Attempt to make the committees as large, large as possible, never fewer than five. Bring up irrelevant issues as frequently as possible. Haggle over precise wordings of communications, minutes, resolutions. In making work assignments, always assign unimportant jobs first. Assign important jobs to inefficient workers with poor machines. Uh, to lower morale and with it production, be pleasant to inefficient workers, give them undeserved promotions, discriminate against efficient workers, complain unjustly about their work, hold meetings when there is more critical work to be done. There's a, there's a longer list, but it is remarkable to me how uh, the definition of sabotage, as defined basically by the CIA, lines up with many people's personal experience with Dow governance. So I'd you know I'd love to get your your kind of take on that you guys is getting your hands dirty working with a lot of uh DAOs and you guys work with phenomenal uh, organizations I will say but you know in in my opinion one of the things that you're trying to optimize for at a high level of a company is good decision making um it's been said in in other podcasts on this podcast before uh that actually there there's a big element of like regulatory arbitrage that is trying to be optimized for especially in early stage DAOs so I'd love to get your both of your opinions on this I mean how efficient are, like, what are we really trying to optimize for here? Is it decision-making? Is it regulatory arbitrage? Is it some middle ground in between? And how do we start making better decisions in these in these uh, organizations? Yeah, I'll, I'll get to the second question. But on the first one, yeah, that's one of my favorite memes, tweets about Dow governance that I've seen. And I've, I've seen a lot. I actually bought the field manual on, on like the, the, the book itself and flipped to that exact page and I like taped it up to the wall as a reminder, I think to myself really about just like making sure that, that, that you care about the right things. And this isn't to say that certain voices don't matter or certain opinions don't matter, but I think when you're like, when you have, hundreds or thousands of people chiming in on certain things if you're really listening and, and and taking like being influenced by every single one of those you're not going to do anything and, and this applies to not just it, it applies to everything right so i think it's important to like be aware of, of 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 the different perspectives but yeah like getting to 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 close and, and to personally invested and and, and listening to like all these things, like it's just not useful. So I think, yeah, I mean, in terms of your second question, like how do we actually arrive at better decision-making? I think it, again, comes back to the common th theme of having the people that are, have the most context and the right incentives actually be the ones driving decision-making. Generally speaking for crypto protocols today that are young, that's going to be the team. As they continue to grow, I think that's when others that with different specialized skill sets can come into the fold and, and provide specific value. I think 
you again generally at this point don't need the masses and and, and thousands or, or tens of thousands of people chiming in and having that is is usually more uh, of a of a downside than a pro at this point. Larry, any thoughts? Any thoughts there? I I totally agree. I think some people would argue, hey, if we have a bunch of people sitting at the table, we're going to get to the wisdom of the crowds, right? We're going to have the crowd make a collective decision and it's going to be great. I can count on one hand out of the thousands of decisions we've seen, how many times that has happened. It, it usually becomes too many cooks in the kitchen, right? Which is the inverse of, of a wisdom of the crowds. And that's a huge problem. The, the other thing is it's not even just wisdom of the crowds. Like time is a fact is, is like a, probably the most important factor, right? Like we don't have endless amounts of time to decide on a single decision. DAOs and, and, and protocols and, and, and apps that can arrive at the decision quicker will, again, over a long enough time frame win. Even if that is a worse decision, maybe than, than one that takes like months to, to arrive at. So I think iteration and, and, and rapid decision making is really important. Yeah. Hmm. I have a, um, you know, I, I want to start talking about, we, Jason and I have annotated this multiple times throughout this season. Uh, this was one of the hardest topics that we've dug into to find people saying positive things about. Basically, you know, we do research before going to these seasons and it's been basic. It was very easy to find people pointing out the problems uh, with the current status quo, but it's harder to find uh, people who are willing to prescribe solutions, probably because, you know, I think you could imagine, and I want to get into this piece that Vitalik wrote about some of the advantages to DAOs and where a DAO might differ from a corporation in its ultimate objective and why a more decentralized, maybe surface-minimized approach to governance could make sense. But I think bridging the gap from point A to point B is very unclear, and I'd love to maybe highlight some of the models, right, the early attempts that we've uh, you know, that we've taken at bridging that gap. So maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, the council structure that Reverie proposed at at Orca and how that might solve um, some of these challenges. Yeah, I'd be happy to chat through that. And you know, none of it is is really all that complicated or rocket science. But some some context is Orca is an AMM on Solana, one of one of the top um, AMMs on there. And you know, we were we were basically trying to brainstorm with the team. Hey, how do we create the most effective product for users. To Derek's point, I think the number one thing we think about is product, right? Because without that, you're kind of screwed. And we, we, we're also thinking about how do we avoid some of the pitfalls other DAOs have fallen into? And, and in particular, how do we make sure that they're able to iterate and move quickly, right? Because to Derek's point, in an early stage company, the most important thing is product and quick iteration times and, and just speed and uh, speed to market. And so what we basically created is a little bit of a hybrid between you know, a, a typical corporate governance structure and maybe uh, a direct democracy, which a lot of the DAOs are. And the idea is basically the token holders elect a council and the council can then have some powers, right? Like make new proposals, right? Um, have, have access to the treasury, stuff like that. But at all times, token holders have ultimate control. So that if the council is acting rogue or if token holders disagree with how the council is actually proceeding, they will have a veto, right? And so there's always that fail safe at the end of the day, such that if council is not doing something well, 
the token holders can have ultimate say. That's the high level summary of, of the, the structure. It's, it's not that complicated. Uh, we think it's not a perfect structure by any means, but it's probably better than the status quo. And really what we're trying to optimize for is speed um, and having the best product in the market. Um, and I think that's, that's what we've come up with uh, for, for Orca. And I'm curious, how has the response been, I guess, both within Orca, but also within maybe some of the circles that you travel within other communities? Do you get the sense that DAOs uh, writ large are looking at uh, council structures as, I, I know it's run into some headwinds in Maker, but, uh, you know, like council-like structures that either Maker or Orca and our DAOs saying, hey, this is like actually pretty interesting. And maybe as a contributor to a DAO, I'm been extremely frustrated by how hamstrung it is to make decisions at, at this organization or do you sort of run into i don't want to say ideologues some mix of ideologues or entrenched incumbents who might have different interests or a different ideology for how a dao might look like what has the response been at work it's been really good um i think that the token holder and the, just the community there in general is and i would say in general the solana community is much more um, hey, let's move quickly and break things sort of mindset rather than the Ethereum community, which is much more um, ideological about decentralization. And these are just trade-offs, right? Like we personally at Reverie don't have strong opinions on which which uh, community is better or worse, but um, there's, there's certainly trade-offs. So Orca, there's really not been too much pushback, but I think a lot of the pushback at, at other projects we've seen, um, which is fair, by the way, is, hey, the these committees that are being formed or these councils, right? They're not putting in the right people. They're putting in the people who are there to, you know, basically profiteer for their own benefit, right? And I think that's where the big pushback is, is fine, we're totally on board with moving quickly and iterating on product, but we don't think you chose the right people. These people are paying themselves too much and, and doing no work, right? And I think that's a very valid criticism. So it really just comes down to, are the people who have power, are they good people? Do they give a shit, right? Are they aligned over the long term or are they just making very short term decisions? And that's really hard to suss out. I have a, uh, I'd like to sort of transition here, just, just moving through our list of topics into kind of what you view as being the ultimate value proposition uh, for DAOs, uh, maybe how and contrast that with how, uh, you know, the corporate model for governance, because trying to get at kind of an end game of why we are embarking on this great experiment in governance, right? And is there a purpose? Um, is there, is it basically is governance say, you, you know, Derek, I heard you use this phrase. I know Hostos used this phrase in the past. Governance is a liability, right? And to some extent, if I were at Reverie and I were in, <laughs> if I were, uh, you know, interacting with some of these communities on a, on a day-to-day -day basis, I might have a very similar perspective, but I'm trying to think like, there's a reason why we're doing this, right? Um, if we were just trying to replicate exactly corporate governance, then then, then what are we all doing here? Uh, so maybe on the spectrum of, you know, all the way on the left over here, we've got uh, governance is a liability because I have to run everything through this, this crazy decision-making process that just hampers good decision-making. And then maybe in the middle of the spectrum, it's it's kind of neutral, right? There, there are some pros to it and there are some cons uh, that they ultimately kind of balance out. And then all the way on the right side of the spectrum is ultimately maybe not for every product, but in, in some very specific cases for a certain type of product, either based on maturity or where it sits on the infrastructure layer, this, this very decentralized uh, you know, structure uh, of governance is actually quite beneficial and uh, governance ceases to become a liability and it becomes an asset. I'd love to get your sense end game wise where you think governance ultimately ends up falling on that spectrum. 
I think in the long run, the ideal governance platform is the one that lets the best ideas win. Hmm. And again, I think that's, that's a little vague. It's a little, it's like, if you dig into what does that actually mean? And I think it comes back to a question earlier you said, which is like, okay, what are the actual strengths of DAOs? Like, what are some of the positive attributes they have? How can they actually compete versus other organizations? And to me, I, the, the, the big one is openness, right? Openness in the sense that anyone can join a DAO, whether it's what that means, it, it doesn't, I don't know, like it depends, but anyone can try to voice their opinion and contribute. And I think today it's very hard for like an average person with no context to, to join a DAO like Uniswap and, and have influence but it is still nonetheless possible. And we have seen anons with no backgrounds, no names, no, no prestige, like come into large protocols and have a lot of influence just because they have good ideas. So to me, I think the, 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 the key over the long run is making sure that the right ideas are surfaced and empowered while, yeah, minimizing the amount of bloat bureaucracy and, and and debate and 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 i think it's inevitable like some some degree of that but i think it's again i think in a in an end state of DAOs, it's, it's much better for like ideas across the world to be surfaced and used than with a, a, a closed company that doesn't do anything transparently or in public so i think we're very far from that reality today but i think that is sort of the end goal. Hmm. I'd be curious. Let me, I'd love to, um, you know, Vitalik laid something pretty interesting out in this piece that he wrote. And he expressly responded to this idea that DAOs are not corporations. It's the title of the piece. <laughs> DAOs are not corporations. Um, and he basically laid out uh, three distinct advantages to DAOs, uh, which is decentralized decision making in concave environments decentralization for censorship resistance and decentralization for credible neutrality. Um, I do wonder, so we're, we're talking largely about decision-making in the context of early stage startups where you want really fast decision-making because honestly, in basically every startup, there are multiple bet the kitchen sink moments uh, that founders need to make. Uh, and those are almost by definition unpopular decisions and difficult ones to make. And those, as Vitalik defines them, are convex decisions, right? It's basically a coin flip, either it works or not. And the benefit of the thing working vastly outstrips the, uh, you know, uh, it failing. And basically every company has to make that in the early stages. I think using his framework, it actually, I think con in, within organizations, decisions largely start out as you want to be optimizing for convex outcomes, which is binary bet the farm type things. But over a certain period of time, you want them to look more concave because it's basically kind of a probability thing, right? If you centralize the, the decision-making, the power with one entity, if they are able to keep doing coin flips, right, to bet the company, odds are eventually they will fail. And you're kind of seeing this in meta right now. This is playing out in corporate governance, actually much more interestingly, even than what's going on in crypto, because Mark Zuckerberg has a, a share structure that allows him to keep making these 
these sorts of bets. Um, so actually, I think you could kind of see, yeah, we'll, we'll see how that all kind of plays out in corporate America. But I'd be curious to get your your thoughts on this idea of convex versus concave decision making. And in some cases, is it actually a benefit, right, Larry, like you were kind of alluding to at the beginning of this episode, what are the instances in our world in crypto DAO land where slower decision making can ultimately be a benefit? Maybe we could start to apply it to some of these protocols. Yeah, like I, I read the, the piece several times and, and candidly, I didn't fully um, digest it, but I, I think I, I get the general gist, right, which is if you're a startup, right, you really have not, not much to lose. You basically have your shingle and, you know, your reputation, which is not much. You may as well bet the farm every single time, right? And when you're big and you have a bunch to lose, you're not going to want to risk everything, which is why, like, large companies, they don't make big, risky decisions. And as a result, they sort of fade into irrelevance, right? And, um, and, and I think that that's totally true. Um, but my, my sense is most of the projects that we're thinking about in the DAO space they look more like startups, right, than large companies that have a lot to lose, right? Ethereum is probably more like a large company than 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 the DApps we're, we're referring to. And in those cases, the DApp cases, they probably should bet the farm, you know, more often than not, because they really don't have much to lose in doing so. That's kind of how I think about it at a high level. Yeah. Um, I, I also, I, I, I want to aggressively... Uh... <laughs> advocate some positive stuff here so let's talk about uh one thing that um one thing that i do so like jason and i in in some of those bet the farm uh in some of those bet the farm decision making actions that have occurred at blockworks in the past jason and i have this like informal thing called a brain trust where it's like all right we got to make a decision that's extremely impactful for the outcome of this organization oftentimes in areas where a we're not necessarily experts, right? So we have a brain trust of people that we trust, which I joke about this, but honestly, it's on my list is my dad. And I'm like, all right, I'll talk to my dad, you talk to your dad. Um, and then also like whatever friends that we might have that are within these these subject areas, employees, if you're listening to Blockworks, we don't do this anymore, but like this was a real thing for like a period of time. Um, and one thing that has uh, really, has been interesting to me, or I could see the advantage of, is if you had direct access, right, via the community to this, this your core kind of power user, right? And you're like, hey, guys, um, maybe we're not floating capital allocation decisions by you or like long-term strategic roadmap or sectors that we want to play in. But it's like, we've got this product. We're thinking about doing feature X, Y, or Z. I'm actually wondering, I think you could kind of get some some useful, fee- if you filter through the, the crap, I think you could actually get some pretty useful product iteration uh, in feedback where you could avoid making mistakes like Netflix did with Quickster, if you remember when they tried to separate the DVDs and the streaming service way too early, right? And even though Reed was ultimately right on that, if he had a if he had a freaking Discord of his, his most loyal customers, he could have probably gotten some feedback that could have saved that stock a 90% drop, if you remember. And they recovered and it was fine. But that's what I'm kind of wondering if like some access to a community, if you weed out some of the responses... Could it be useful for product iteration? I, I know we were a little bit, um, you know, pessimistic on DAOs, but you know, we, <laughs> I, I'm, you know, and, and I am, and, and I know Revery is. We're we're very bullish on them, actually, right? And and the reason we're bullish on them is we see all these problems, right? And we see solutions to them, right? And and to your point, like one big benefit of of DAOs, and Derek mentioned this, is they are open. 
right? So the users are in Discord, they are in the forums, and they're constantly telling you what they don't like about the product. That's kind of cool, right? And I think the DAO teams that look at that and actually iterate on that feedback, they will do really damn well. Um, I also think like the, the fact that DAOs are kind of internet native organizations that anyone in the world can join and coordinate around this token, um, it, it really is a hotbed for talent. And so it attracts really, really good talent that would otherwise you know, be really difficult to incentivize to come, come join. Um, so there's, there's so many awesome, I think, tailwinds that DAOs have, but there's immense problems as well. Um, but you know, I, think, I think a lot of the teams that, that work on DAOs and really, really try hard and are rigorous about the work they do, um, they, they see all these problems and they, they look at them as things to solve, right? And that's the most important thing, I think, is to ad address the problems and fix them. And I think, you know, um, I think the good DAOs will, you know, fix those issues over time. Guys, who do you think is right to be a DAO right now? So, so, so if you look at a lot of the DAOs today, it's a lot of the, um, a lot of the brands were started in like 2018, 2019. They really, like, they really boomed in, the, in, in DeFi summer. After DeFi summer, we saw a lot of we saw a lot of DeFi brands or organizations raise capital as DAOs. But really, now if you look at a lot of them, they're these like you know ten to fifty person startups that that don't really operate as DAOs. And now if you look at a lot of the decks and a lot of the companies that are raising, there's like no DAO, like very few DAOs that are raising. Um, I'm just curious how you guys think. It, it seems like your north star for like why DAO is. It's, the, it, it's a new evolution of like corporate structure built for this world that's incredibly open, incredibly global, digital first. Um, so I'm just curious, like how you think about who is right for a DAO, and like, do you think we'll we'll get the resurgence of like founders raising as you know from the start as a DAO in in the next bull market? And, and I'm just curious how you think about that. Yeah, I think the the short answer is there's only some use cases within crypto where competing on decentralization and openness makes your product better. I think the mistake that has been made a, a, a lot is, yeah, let's make everything a DAO, like every single use case in, in crypto from trading to, to lending and borrowing to, to, to gaming to middleware, like, let's just try all of it. Let's make it a DAO, right? And I think it's it, it, it's clear that with a lot of those services, right? Like the thing, if you want like maybe reliability, maybe if you want like customer support, if you want like insurance, like you probably don't need a DAO, at least for now. It's probably just not even possible. So I think it just really has to be the, the right use cases and yeah, I, I, I think over time we will see we will see a resurgence of, of folks building DAOs, raising on that thesis. But I definitely think we're we're in a bit of a trough. The same way that after the twenty seventeen like token like ICO boom, there was probably two or three years where tokens were were, were deeply deeply unpopular, and the industry was. was like, again, I'm generalizing, like, it was really only just Bitcoin and Ethereum. And then in 2020, we sort of had a resurgence in, in tokens. So again, many of which are not useful and, and are not sustainable, but I think it's, there, there's a handful or more that, 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 that are interesting and, and people and, and are doing something new. So 
I think we're just a few years behind that with DAOs where it is difficult to point to one today and be like, that's an amazing example. Everything's going super well. But if you, if you, if you zoom out and, 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 and go ahead two, three years, like I do think that will happen. So, you know, it's amazing. Derek leading up to this season, I actually went back and looked at some emails and texts and unfortunately public tweets that I had sent about, uh, to tokens, tokens in 2019. And like my, I was about as bearish as you can get on tokens in 2019. And again, this is like a year and a half into the bear, like absolute bottom of the market. Everyone's basically saying like, is crypto even going to work? And it, it feels, I, I hadn't thought I hadn't put that together of like my take on tokens back then was, is, is kind of like how a lot of people are viewing DAOs today, which is like DAOs are dumb. No. Yeah. So I like that. Term. Like the, the intellectual, like, discussions on on twitter on telegram like that like they're, they're just discussions it changes so quickly most of the largest like token users token holders today at some point in the last two three years like we're sorry like for four or five years we're, we're huge bitcoin bulls right and and nothing else yeah. and yeah like it's only it's human nature i think when you see a ton of to, to be like counter cyclical and to, to be contrarian um, when you see, and, and I think, yeah, anyone that saw like all the Dow raises in 2020, 2021, like didn't take a rock sign, just be like, some of these don't need to be Dow's. Um, and I think people feel justified that a lot of that is, is, is playing out the way that they thought. But I think, again, it's times like these where like the, the folks that do believe that, 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 that realize there is, some utility to, to 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 DAOs and protocols. Like, I think those are the ones that will 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 be well positioned in the next cycle, whatever whatever yeah. that means for you. So, one thing I'd add is, um, I think anyone who's worked at a large company, like a Fortune 500 company, knows how dysfunctional corporate America and just corporations are. Right? Like these all there's all these meetings, all these all hands, right? all of these weird hierarchical things. And oftentimes, if you're a junior person, you have really good ideas. You're not going to communicate those ideas up to the CEO. First of all, you probably don't have access to the CEO. And second of all, even if you did, you wouldn't have the chutzpah to tell the CEO what problems the company is facing, right? And there's there's all sorts of stuff that, that companies... Um, uh, you know, have challenges with, right? Because because people don't let the problems um, really, there's no escape valve, right, for the problems. And with DAOs, I think, and this is something I think is really bullish for them, is there's a huge escape valve for the problems, right? Forums and Discord. So at all times, all of the ugliness is out there, right? And I think that's like half the battle is just identifying the problems and saying, hey, the shit's not working. You know, someone needs to fix it. Most companies do not have that escape valve and, you know, and, and they still function, by the way, like it still works despite all these huge problems and, um, and DAOs too, right? Like a lot of them have all these problems. They still work just fine, right? The products are kicking ass and maybe they're not moving as quickly as they should, but, you know, don't let perfect be the enemy of good either. So I think there's a lot of really, you know, good things for DAOs as well. I, um, 
you, you know, I, I think that question of product iteration and to exactly what you're talking about, the direct feedback filtering all the way up. Um, I can give you a very concrete example of how that actually helped our business. Uh, we, you know, host conferences and we had hosted DAS for a long time. That's our institutional conference. And the selling point there is for banks and hedge funds and regulators. And the selling point is exclusivity, right? Like all of the verbiage of the, the conference was basically around this idea of exclusivity and a very high uh, quality of attendee. Uh, we hosted permissionless with Bankless this this previous year, and we borrowed from that. Right? Uh, we didn't. You know, we have like VIP this and VIP that, and we uh, we submitted these proposals to like Uniswap. And I remember we just got shredded, just shredded in this. And you know, if we had submitted this proposal to a marketer, we probably could have got this like, oh yeah, this looks like really interesting. Let me take it up the chain, and then we wouldn't have gotten responded to for a couple of weeks, and then it would have been like, oh, I really advocated for you, but it's a no. The community was like, we'll never sign anything that's like exclusive. We don't want that. We want this to be a community event. And we pivoted and we changed our entire marketing message. We changed how the event was laid out. And it was honestly super valuable, extremely direct feedback that completely changed uh, an enormous product for us. Uh, so that's like, honestly, it's kind of annoying, but we were able to weed out some of the signal from the, the noise. So it, it's helped us in the past. Um, I, I, um, I'm just I'm laughing because I remember, remember that I remember that comments were ruthless guys you should have seen this like. look it up it's in it's in governance yeah you can look it up on um, they're pretty funny so uh, I've got one more kind of uh, technical question on for you and then I want to I want to get to some recommendations because I always think about Reverie you guys are practitioners right and there there are people that are out there that are maybe leaders in DAOs or contributors to communities and I love uh, to walk away with some sort of actionable advice from this interview uh, but I also you know, one thing that occurs to me is there like a narrative right now that's been kind of playing out. It's a narrative, but it's actually a very real struggle for for like what models can ultimately be successful is kind of app chains uh, versus layer twos is aware of scaling on Ethereum. And I think DAO, DAOs play a role in this uh, and that, that form of governance, because, you know, if you think about something like an app chain, you're trying to vertically integrate and build the, the full stack, right? Like a project like Osmosis is building the exchange, but also like products on top of that that customers are going to want to use. And that's entirely uh, based on DAO governance, right? Governance, DAO governance is making all the decisions that goes into that, the base and the product. If you look at something like Uniswap, right, they've, uh, there's a different sort of model, which is, okay, we want the base DEX layer, um, to be governed by a DAO, but then there's going to be a labs, which is company, right, which is building on top of that, um, which allows for a little bit more rapid product iteration and fast decision making. So I'd be curious to get your understanding of how like governance, these uh, the pros and cons of, uh, of DAO governance play into this app chain versus ETH scaling kind of roadmap. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think a lot of people have, uh, app chains are, are obviously a super big topic right now. There's been a lot of writing about the benefits, whether it's with regards to MEV approaches, scalability, technical design, and, and others. And yeah, if you boil it down, it, it it comes down to whatever innovations crypto has in the future, app chains will be the ones that can can actually leverage them and, and, and implement them. Whereas on, on other L1s, they might have less optionality. So I, I think, I, so, so I think, yeah, generally speaking, like app chains, the, the thesis really is like modular governance and, and having more direct control. It like enables certain use cases that aren't possible on, on Ethereum, but 
I, I do think over time Ethereum L2s like it, it, again they they will change they will change as well like the you look at Optimism you look at Arbitrum and, and some of the other L2s today like I think they're very closely aligned with Ethereum and and it's very important for them but again I think over a long enough time frame those communities will will grow and they will start to think about their own long term positioning and and making sure that regardless of what yeah ethereum or, or like does that that they're well positioned so i'm not saying that i think l2s will will be like necessarily hostile to to ethereum or other protocols but i think like as they grow they'll they'll have their own stakeholders that don't necessarily hold ETH and we should expect them to to act on their incentives so I, I was just to maybe clarify one one minor thing there. I was kind of trying to refer to this idea of like if DAO governance is a liability, then it seems like app chains are actually slightly more exposed to that liability today than the roadmap that um, some of the DApps on ETH have taken. Because if you think about Uniswap, right, like there's the kind of base layer DEX, but then you have this layer on top. There are two separate forms of governance there where products, right, uh, that users actually interface with are going to be created mostly by Uniswap Labs, right, um, which has a that more authoritative, like rapid iteration type governance structure. Whereas for uh, an app chain, it's it's entirely done through DAO governance. So that was my like. Do you see that? Is that is that like an uh, apt analogy to use then? Like more exposure to DAO governance liability in the app chain side, or do you not think that's a factor? I understand the framing, and I think it has some truths. But again, I think it comes down to optionality, right? Like app chains, having an option doesn't necessarily mean that every part of the stack is directly controlled by governance. I think like app chain creators and builders have the option, have, have the option on which parts to, to decentralize and which parts to centralize. I think if, if you take the app chain vision to its extreme where yeah, everything from 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 the consensus to the front end, like it's all as decentralized as possible. Then, yeah, it's uh, the, the, the 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 obviously the scope of governance is is much bigger. So I think yeah, app chains there's definitely more governance generally, but I, I think it's more about I think of it more as as having more optionality and how to like use that governance. Let's uh. You know, maybe in terms of, I know we're, we're a little limited on time here, but I'd love to get to some uh, more kind of prescriptive or, or practical advice. Um, Larry, I, I know you wrote this piece for, for Reverie. Uh, basically, it's it's we'll, we'll link it in the show notes, but it's called Musings on Governance. And there's some kind of actionable, you know, you sort of lay out some some problem areas or some issues for, for DAOs or that a lot of DAOs are uh, sort of struggling with and then kind of what reveries uh, prescription would be right for, for how to move forward or how to think about it um, there are a couple that you laid out so uh, treasuries so treasuries aren't funds or endowments or other pools of capital um, the interesting issue of sometimes contributors having outside agendas or you know undisclosed interests uh, committees uh, diluting accountability um, uh, conflicts of uh, are basically governance being politics and, and not necessarily shying away from that. So I'd love to get your your kind of thoughts on what you think some of the the most important issues that, that DAOs are facing today. Um, and as maybe prescriptive as you want to be, like how would you advise DAOs that you're working on for, for dealing with them? 
I think the number one thing, like by far, is to have the right people sitting at the table, right? So the decision makers need to be chosen very carefully, at least in the early stages. Um, the risk in not doing so, and, and we've seen this a lot, right? And I'm sure you guys have as well, is when you introduce too many cooks in the kitchen, it becomes analysis paralysis and decision making grinds to a halt, right? And so I think early on, it's really important for the team, like the early stage team, to, to basically say, okay, we are clearly the best people for the job, right? We have the most context, the most experience, the most history, the most vision. And over time, bring people on board um, very selectively. I think that's like by far the biggest thing. If you don't do that, right, and you empower just completely random people, um, it, it, it becomes a quagmire, like a political quagmire. And I think the competent people, the people who actually want to do really good work, they see that political quagmire and they just don't want to sling mud, right? It's, it's not interesting to them. They just want to do cool stuff, right, and be productive. And as a result, when they see it, they leave. And I think that's really, really dangerous to Dow. So the number one thing we'd recommend is always have the team be really involved in figuring out who's sitting at that table um, initially. I'd love to actually get your, uh, like, totally agree with that. Um, maybe if I could pick on your thoughts for Dow Treasuries, actually, specifically, because there's a lot of discussion uh, around them. I think, uh, like you, what, what you wrote really resonated with me, because if you th if you look at how treasuries are managed in corporate America, it's basically you want the finances of the business to not impact or support the operating decisions of the business, right? So that's why corporate treasurers tend to be very risk averse, and most of your assets are basically just want to keep up with inflation, right? That's why they're in very short dated treasuries with, um, you know, like, and you're not taking basically outsized risk. The way that I've kind of heard Dow Treasuries talked about sometimes is, oh, yeah, we're going to engage in all these complex derivative structures, which is like delta neutral yield farming and all this stuff. And I'm just like, are you optimizing what you should be optimizing for there, which is just to not run out of money? And, uh, you know, so I'd love to get your, your kind of thoughts on how you think we're going to see that, that field evolve. This is a, a huge pet peeve of mine, right? Like having DAOs manage treasuries like hedge funds. Like DAOs should not be using their balance sheet capital, right? Their treasury to, uh, to, to make risky bets, to make venture investments, to buy all these hedges, right? To invest in derivatives. Because, you know, investors basically give money to DAOs, right? And if investors wanted to do all that stuff themselves, they would have done it. The reason they invested in the DAO is because they believe in whatever that DAO is doing. They're not investing in the DAO to do all sorts of, you know, hedge fund activities. And I think when you see that sort of stuff, a lot of it is, you know, just service providers trying to bamboozle the DAO, right, and, and make a personal dollar. And, you know, you see this in the traditional world, too. And I think, unfortunately, you see it in DAO land. But, you know, I, I think most of the well-run DAOs, they, they don't engage in that sort of stuff. In fact, I, I don't think any of them do. And it's, it's really the... The DAOs that don't know better that they they you know use their their balance sheet their treasury as a hedge fund, um, and it's it's obviously a huge problem in the space, right? It's a, a honeypot of money, and so people are attracted to it. But I think you're right. Like DAOs should be extremely uh, risk averse when it comes to that sort of stuff. They should just hold you know some cash reserves for you know runway, right? Maybe two to three years, two to four years, um, and um, and not speculate with the rest. Um. Guys, uh, I I love for I mean the audience can can tell right uh, I think just from from our chat so far that that you really have a deep understanding of working with these DAOs communities, kind of getting your hands dirty on the ground. But can you just tell uh, everyone a little bit about what Reverie is, and if folks want to follow 
uh, more of your work or find out more about the work that you do or connect or whatever it is? Like, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, the you know best way to understand Reverie is to understand Derek and I's background. You know, we were we were former VCs in this space. I was at Digital Currency Group. Derek was at Blockchain Capital, and you know we were investing in a lot of startups. And as a result, we were not able to get super hands-on with any one company. And we wanted to do things completely differently at Reverie. And so instead, what we do is we get super hands-on with very few companies at any given time. And you know, at a high level, what Reverie is, it's an advisory business and an investing business. So we get super hands-on with a few companies. Most of them are DAOs, but we work with companies too. Um, and we basically are operators in the trenches alongside the team. And then we make small investments as well. Awesome, guys. Um, well, I, I will I, I show one more part of your business, which is the I Pledge Allegiance uh, podcast as well, which is phenomenal. Uh, listeners to On the Margin and Belcraft have probably heard this uh, podcast, uh, I Pledge Allegiance. Uh, there are a lot, lot of I Pledge Allegiance references. Um, so you guys have done uh, great work, uh, especially kind of fleecing out some of these ideas about DAOs and governance. Um, so I uh, I highly recommend listeners, if, if you enjoy this program, especially this season, uh you know, if there was a godfather to the season, kind of a guiding light, it was definitely you guys and the work that you're doing at I Pledge Allegiance. So, um, yeah, it was an honor to have both of you on the show. Uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts. And, you know, we'll have to do it again soon. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thanks a lot, Jason. Thanks, Derek. Thanks, Thanks, guys. Thanks Cheers. Fun. Cheers, fellas. All right, buddy. What did we think? It was a great conversation. It was a really good conversation. Um, that, that piece on mus- musings of governance, musings on governance got brought up a lot. Um, I thought that there, uh, I think it was Derek was talking about this, just the difference between the users and um, basically just like who you're optimizing for. That 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 really stood out to me. I don't know if you found that too interesting, but yeah. To dig into that, I think Derek actually had a great phrase. Basically, when you're trying to think about optimizing for decision-making, you want the people who are the most competent and the most incentivized, especially at the early stage of the company, right? That kind of looks like like management. I think now there's some kind of fine-tuning in terms of what that actually looks like. For for me, a narrative that we kind of consistently find ourselves questioning, even just two episodes in, is this kind of idea where, you know, one of, one of the, the promises of crypto is this great alignment of incentives between investors and users, right? No longer are shareholders versus users going to be these two different classes with sometimes opposing incentives. And instead, it's going to be this beautiful alignment where they're the same thing and, uh, you know, shareholder returns and a good user experience are the same thing. I think we are seeing that kind of stand in stark contrast of the truth, right? Which is, you know, more and more in some of these DAOs, actually token holders that aren't necessarily particularly well-informed and mostly are just looking, you know, invested in these projects for a speculative kind of financial reason, have an outsized say as opposed to early users. Um, and just, just for fun, I kind of went and, you know, I'm a user of products, right? Like I use a bunch of products in my day-to-day life. And then I kind of went and look at, looked at some of the stonks that I'm invested in, you know, some of those legacy stonks uh, before pre-crypto days. And uh, I just wanted to see like what the overlap was, like, what was the Venn diagram of uh, stocks that I invested in versus what I use. And it's not big. I'm not, it's not big because, you know, usually the reason I buy a particular stock is because I, it has good financial prospects instead of me necessarily just using it. And I get that it's a little bit different because in the beginning, you know, be you know the blending of the user and the investor if you like find something really early and you want upside in it i i understand how that could be different but i think we're starting to see it prove out that that's not necessarily the same the desire to use and the desire to invest uh and and that's going to be something that we just need to figure out i think that narrative has come under pretty significant fire basically yeah 
I, I mean, I think one narrative that you saw in the last cycle, this like recurring debate that we saw over and over again was investors own too much, community owns too little. And hearing Derek and Larry talk about this, it feels like that's maybe a narrative that goes away in the next cycle, that in the next cycle of Dow governance, we're gonna actually give more signal to ideas and proposals that are proposed by token holders who hold a significant chunk of their fund, right, in 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 that token, for example. And that got into the, uh, another thing that I thought was really interesting, which is uh, just how we think about like group think and like decision making inside of these, right? So like a, one, one thing that DAOs currently do is they try to optimize for openness. So what they do is they like promote DAO governance and they wanna get like 10,000 people voting on these things. Well, that might not actually be it might, it might be much better, I think as they explained, it would be better to participate in a DAO with 10 motivated 10% owners of a DAO rather than like 10,000 lackadaisical people who own like, I don't know, 100 bucks of each token or something, right? The outcome in the former is far more likely to be positive than the outcome in the latter. I thought that was a good point that I think it was uh, Larry made. You know, we're recording this, you know, it's impossible to not talk about current events to some extent. This is, we're recording this November 14th, so we're just watching uh, SBF and that the whole FTX drama unfold. And it is the latest and greatest reminder of the fact that crypto feels the need to continuously relearn lessons that have been learned in traditional finance, sometimes going back hundreds of years, right? And this is just the latest, most stark reminder that no, this is not different. And the rules of financial gravity still apply to our little ecosystem. And I think that in DAOs, we are basically making the same mistake with organizational psychology. And there are these principles that people are, are pretty well understood uh, that people have adopted in not just necessarily corporate America, but gatherings and, and organizations of all all types. Um, and, and DAOs are basically just trying to, to flout that. So like a good example is one that you just brought up, which is ev everything should be discussed out in the open. And that to me is insane. I, that's just so uh, flies in the face of if you've ever been a part of a successful organization, how issues are handled. It is not all done out in the open. There's a degree of transparency that comes from the top, but airing dirty laundry in public and just letting the mob decide is literally the worst way to problem solve and move past things. So I kind of think we are speed running the history of organizational psychology on the Dow side of things. I think that was a big take uh, from from the episode as well. So yeah. I, I and and the la the last thing too is we. You know, we, we talked something about, and this is where I'm not, my, my personal viewpoint is, I think there's a way where community could be beneficial. I think having this kind of rabid cult following or, you know, let's call it incentivized, you know, very positive kind of contributors of, of users where they organize themselves into this community. I can, I can very much see when I close my eyes how that could be a good thing. But I think today it's almost undoubtedly a pretty negative thing. And I do think that many DAOs kind of over-optimized for community, right? And like giving free stuff away to the community because they just demanded it. I mean, like you and I kind of had that experience when we did our NFT launch through these like nuts expectations. Um, so I, I think we, I think that's the big unanswered question is like, what is the, the through line to turning this thing where we just vote every proposal to the community and, crowdsource this idea which is like just not a good way to make decisions in the early days of a startup to how can eventually how can eventually we make this a more positive experience and how can it be a competitive advantage and a moat for these organizations moving forward but that's what i have like 
no visibility on, frankly. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's good to hear them give some good, like, practical feedback, right? Like, I think they're 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 uh, they're very skeptical on a couple things that existed in DAO governance in the bull run, right? Skeptical on having many contributors. Skeptical on uh, managing funds like a fund versus a treasury, right? They like this idea of having committees with leaders who are accountable. Um, but at the same time, incredibly optimistic about DAOs is just a better form of uh, organizing people, right? In a world that's like fully remote, digital, global, just a better form of organization. So I like the skeptical optimism. Yeah, it was, it was funny. I'm, I, I didn't realize that Derek had this like printed out, uh, but that section from the OSS manual and everything that like sabotage, all those definitions of what effective sabotage is and how faithfully that kind of lines up to how decisions are made in DAOs was pretty stark contrast. So I think, you know, the optimistic side of me is like, wow, okay, we're doing it wrong now, but I think most people have sort of aligned on what the the issues are. And then that is a, that's a good place because then you've got nowhere to go but up, basically. But it was, it was interesting that he had also keyed into that, uh, yeah. Yeah, that particular yeah. passage. Really good episode coming up next. We have uh, Mika Honkasalo and Shreyas. Uh, talking about how to grow DAOs organically. So I'm curious, what do, you, what do you want to get out of that episode? I want to know how to grow these things. I've got a pretty good sense now of like what it takes to grow a company and what some of the growing pains are and you know how pro like people process these systems sort of evolve in a, in a very young startup. But I'd be curious what some of the similarities and differences are of growing a DAO. Um, and frankly, I, I, hope that, I, I hope and expect that we'll get into some of the frictions of growing an early stage DAO. Uh, or even like a mid to later stage DAO, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm sure we're going to be hearing about the perspectives uh, at Maker, but, but, I'd, but I'd love to know, you know, any, any positive experiences that they might have had or, you know, prescriptions for how, you know, an early stage DAO could actually be better or what the advantages could be over a traditional company. So I want to talk about growth, basically. Great. All right. See you guys in episode three. Cheers, buddy. Peace.